All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Reading verse 8, just to bring us back up to it. If you, I hope you do have a little copy of these notes in your hand if you came in through the, the door there. That'll help you as you follow along. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 is on page 1233 if you happen to be using a Schofield reference Bible. That's what's in the pews in this auditorium, so you can follow that way or just find your own 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Confident. That was something he said back in verse 6 as well. In verse 6 he said, we are always confident, knowing. These are words of great assurance. Paul had no doubt about his salvation, about his destination, about what was going to be his um, last home, and that would not be this old body on the earth, but with the Lord, present with the Lord in heaven. And he said in verse 8, I'm willing rather, I would prefer, I'd be well pleased if I wasn't here anymore, but I'd be with the Lord. And we don't want to check out before the Lord wants us. We don't we're not advocating suicide. That's not what this is about. But our attitude toward life and death is not the same as someone that doesn't have this kind of confidence and assurance. Some of you may have had family or close friends that you've lost. I lost a daughter when she was 19. But I'm so confident, though she is absent from the body, she's with the Lord. She's already enjoying what I will eventually get to. <laughs> And it's a sad thing. There's great sorrow and grief that you never get over it. But isn't it good to have this confidence? And when you face difficult situations where you might have to to sacrifice things, whether it even is as far as your whole life, it's much less of a sacrifice. Somebody said, when the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you, it makes living and dying a lot easier. Most people think of dying as the worst thing that can happen to you. Not Paul. He was ready to go. In chapter 12 of this same book, this is page 1238, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Paul is getting over himself. He says, I'm not going to keep on glorying here. I was telling you stuff about how I lived. He says, I'm going to come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, let me tell you what I saw from Jesus. And then he puts this whole thing in the third person, but he's talking, I'm sure he's talking about himself, and you'll see why here in a moment. I knew a man, he's saying, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. I don't know, really went to heaven in the body, or if it was just a spiritual experience, I don't know. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul had this experience, I believe it's recorded in the book of Acts, we're not going there, where in one of the places in Asia Minor where he and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they got mad because he criticized their worship of the pagan gods. When they tried to worship Paul and Barnabas, they said, don't do that. We're trying to change your mind about those things to understand the true God. 
And they hauled them outside the gate of the city and stoned Paul until he was dead. I think that's what this is referring to, because Paul said, went to heaven, I, I'm not, but then God put him back to work, gave him back his, his breath and his life, and he went on. So there's Paul's experience. That's a very unusual experience. When a friend of Jesus named Lazarus had died and was four days dead, Jesus came to the tomb and he wept. Mostly, I think, there's other reasons as well, but mostly Jesus wept because Lazarus had already gone through the hard part of dying, and death was not bad. Death was for a place of rest and peace for Lazarus, but Jesus wept, I think, besides in empathy for the family, but he wept because he knew he was going to put Lazarus through death again, and that's not appropriate. But Paul did it, and Lazarus did it. Some of the men that were resuscitated by the great prophets, Elisha, Elijah, they went through death again. That's unusual. It's appointed to man once to die. These are exceptions to the rule. There's another thought about what physical death entails in the Psalms. In Psalm chapter, the 16th Psalm, they're not really chapters, they're separate songs. Of course, verse 10, this, this is, by the way, page 605 and runs over to 606. Verse 10 is prophetic of Jesus and his resurrection. Verse 10 says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. In that Sheol in the Old Testament, the New Testament, Hades, not talking about the eternal lake of fire for punishment, talking about the place of the dead, which had in it separate places for those who knew the Lord and those who did not know the Lord. Jesus described it in the Gospel of Luke. We read about a a rich man that went and went to torments, and a, a beggar who apparently knew the Lord went to Abraham's bosom, the place where Abraham gave hugs, and uh, he was comforted. And that's the best description we have in the whole book about Hades or Sheol. And it is translated H-E-L-L several, most places in the, in the Bible, Old and New Testament. It was the place of the dead, and it's not the eternal hell, as we use the word, uh, some people use the word today, I try not to, but that eternal place of torment is called the lake of fire. It's called many things like that, but the word hell is not actually used for the eternal hell in the Bible. It's used of the more or less temporary place of the dead. But once you're there, if you're a lost person and you die like that rich man, there's no escaping it. It's only temporary in the aspect that it's not the lake of fire. At the end of the Revelation chapter 20, it says death and, it says hell, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Anybody that was not found written in the Lamb's book of life went from Hades to the eternal lake of fire. The whole thing goes, but there's no believers in it by that point. Anyway, we're back to Psalm 16, having digressed there for a moment. Verse 10 is used as prophecy by the apostles in the early chapters of the book of Acts to point out Jesus rose from the dead. When David wrote Psalm 16, he said, Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, Now David wrote that, but he wasn't writing it about himself. Because his tomb's right over here. We got his tomb. His bones are still there. He did see corruption. But the one God sent his son, the chosen one, the Messiah that you crucified, 
He couldn't see corruption. He's risen. He's not dead anymore. That was prophetic. It's the verse, the verse in the whole Old Testament that's plainest about the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. Thou neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. But we came here for verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's a place of life. It's not just everybody's asleep, don't disturb them. No, life. What is the thing that's different about the God of the Bible and all the false gods of the Bible? What's the one title of God that gives away he's different? The living God. The living God. Isaiah makes fun of the false gods. He says they've got ears, but they can't hear. He's got eyes, but they can't see. They've got feet, but they can't walk. They've got hands, but they can't do anything. And they that follow them are like them. They're kind of deaf and dumb and blind. But our God is the living God. And here in the psalm it says, God will show his person, his man, the path of life. We go beyond the Messiah to all of us who know the Lord. In thy presence, that's where Paul said he wanted to be present with the Lord. And in thy presence is fullness of joy. Somebody says, well, what are you going to do in heaven all the time? I don't care. (laughs) I'm going to be happy. Fullness of joy. The word fullness, we don't use it so very much anymore, but we use the word filled or filling when we study the New Testament, talk about don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It means to be controlled by God's Spirit, the same way that alcohol takes away your control if you allow that to fill your body. The Holy Spirit will control you if you allow Him to control you. That's the filling of the Spirit. And this says joy, fullness of joy. In the presence of God, joy controls. Joy's in charge. I, I just like that. You, your cup is overflowing. At thy right hand, that's the place of honor whenever you're with somebody important. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What is it going to be? I don't know. I have an idea it's not golf. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of of boring after a while? Tee off, hole in one. (laughs) Tee off, hole in one. I don't need any of those other clubs. I'm just going to tee off and hit the hole. That, that's not so good. That, I, I don't know. Maybe you like golf. If you like golf, it might be there. Sometimes a child will say, when a, when a puppy or a pet has passed away, says, is, is Spot going to be in heaven? And I, I, The book of Revelation does refer to animals in heaven, but, but uh, I think the best way to answer that is whatever you need for it to give you the fullness of joy, it'll be there. Personally, I think we'll be focused on the Lord. We'll be all about about Jesus. Being with Jesus is the heaven of heaven. In John chapter 12, it says, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. That, that's what I'm looking for, being with Jesus. That's what Paul said. In chapter 17, just over one little bit here in the book, Excuse me, verse 24, in 1724, that's not right. Oh, that's, I'm sorry, I, I skipped down in my mind to John 1724. Let's just go to John's gospel now, but only to chapter 14. John 14, no, there was a 17, I'm sorry. 
back, back, back. Psalm 17, verse 15. Just can't read with my tongue got in front of my eye teeth and I couldn't see what I was saying. And that's supposed to be funny, but it's not. As for me, verse 15 says, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I am awake with thy likeness. There are a lot of things in this lifetime that are fun. Some things are thrilling. Some things are ecstatic even. But the only promise of satisfaction, abiding satisfaction, is in a phrase that's found in Proverbs called the fear of the Lord. It says, the fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. Abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. So in this lifetime, if you fear the Lord, you reverence him and honor him like the father that he is, and fear him. It says you'll abide satisfied. God, God really, somebody said yesterday, God's looking for people who want to make him look good. <laughs> you want to make God look good, he's going to take care of you. I'm going to behold thy face in righteousness. David wrote it. You know, he would be thinking back about Moses when he wrote that, don't you think? What was something Moses desperately wanted to do? And God said, you can't. Lord, let me see your your face. Let me see your face. And God said, anybody see my face dies. You can't see my face and live. But David says, I'm going to. I will behold thy face in righteousness. I'll be satisfied when I wake up with thy likeness. Not only going to see it, I think I'm going to wear it. <laughs> the, the likeness of God. It's not in the notes, but over in 1 John chapter 3, John wrote, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We wake up on the other side of death or after the rapture and see the Lord. And we look back at ourselves and, and expecting to see what we're used to seeing, and some of it's going to be gone. All the old's going to be gone. The bad's going to be gone. The thing that the wrong-headed holiness people teach right now that you can get sinless perfection here in this lifetime it's going to be true once we're after the rapture or after death no more sin i'll be satisfied when i awake with thy likeness not just meaning i'll looking at the lord and the boy it's it's satisfying no i'm gonna it's gonna be the lord's righteousness will be mine in possession not just on my account in heaven but actually in mine in possession all right, well, let's, let's go back where I meant to go there. John 14, 3, page 1135, if you're using the Schofield Bible. Jesus is comforting the disciples who are mad or sad or grieving because he's told them he's leaving. He's been with them and leading them and teaching them for three years. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him feed thousands. They've seen him calm the sea. And he says, I'm leaving. That would upset you. But he says this, and I started in verse 3 just for time, but at the end of verse 3 he says, There, where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise of heaven. But in verse 1, so, so fine, let not your heart be troubled. 
Don't be mad. Don't be sad. Don't be grieved. You believe in God. Believe also in me. You might read that. Keep on believing in God and in me. In my father's house are many mansions. Somebody, when I was a teenager, said, how do we know heaven is where we go? I know I have eternal life, but how do we know it's heaven? But Jesus taught them to pray, our Father which art in heaven. That's where God lives. That's where the Father's house is. And here he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, many places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare one of those uh, places for you, a mansion. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm not going to let it go to waste. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that the promise of heaven? And he assured them, you know where I'm going and you know the way. And they said, well, I'm not real sure. In chapter 17, just in case you said, well, that was for those disciples. How do I know that's for me too? In chapter 17, he prayed. The whole chapter is his prayer for the disciples and for us. In verse 24, he prayed, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. What did Jesus give up to become a man? His glory. He left it. He set aside his glory so that he could do the work that he did while he was on the earth and especially so that he could die on the cross, pay for sins, rise again. And he says, I want them to see me in my glory. He'd kind of given them just a glimpse on the mountain. Peter, James, and John saw him with his glory. And they said, man, can't look at that. And, uh, but it, it ended. He said, don't you tell anybody about this till we're done. <laughs> till we're done. He says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you think Jesus knew where he came from and who he was? <laughs> no doubt. No doubt about it. In verse um, 20, just before this verse 24, he says, Neither pray I for these, the eleven that are around him there, for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. This whole prayer isn't just for those eleven. Judas is already gone, but for the eleven and for those which shall believe on me through their word. And that's us. That's everybody down through the years that's believed in Jesus. Now we're going to go on to a, a different point in the, in the chapter that we're studying. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to get past verse 8 and get to verse 9. It'll just be wonderful. There. Verse 9. Wherefore... Dr. Cameron used to say, when you see wherefore, you've got to look and see what it's there for. Either wherefore or therefore. You gotta, it's referring back to what just came. Because of this confidence, because of this great assurance, confidence, knowing, he says, therefore, we labor. That's a working word. We labor, that whether present or absent. The word labor is funny. I put it in the notes. It's philo timeomai. Philo timeomai. Philio is one of the kinds of love in the Greek language. Philio is like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, brotherly love, companionship, fondness. It's not a bad word at all. 
But philo, philo temeomai, the, the temeo is a word for honor. And this is to be fond of honor or to be actuated by love of honor, to be ambitious in a good sense. We are pointing ourselves this way. We're working at it that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. This is what we hope for. This is what we're working toward, acceptance of him. Live or die or rapture. I've turned my notes to page two. We should live the same way. Whether we are still here in this body or have gone to be with the Lord, he'll want to have us right close to him. We may be accepted of him. The word accepted there is euarestos. The little prefix eu means good, like evangelism is good news, evangelism, um, good. And so we want to be agreeable to him. We want to be accepted of him. It's not saying oh, I hope I make it to heaven. It's saying when I'm with him, I want to be somebody he is so glad to have. We want to be eagerly drawn close to the Savior. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of... Oh, it says judgment. That's scary. The judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Some people are frightened by this a little bit. It shouldn't be frightening. The words translated judgment seat of Christ, the easiest way to understand what it's like that they refer to is not the judge in the courtroom, but the officials, the judges, if you will, the panel of judges at the end of any Olympic event where they hold up their cards and they look at their, all of them got a 10. Nadia Comaneci, perfect. I watched that when it happened live, I don't know. But that had never happened before, where all the judges agreed it was a flawless performance. The judgment seat of Christ, the Greek word is bema, or bema, and it means the rewarding stand. We're all going to appear before the bema of Christ. He's the only judge, and it says we're going to get what we did. In a sense, the karma word is biblical. This is biblical karma. You get what you deserve according to what he's done, and then says whether it be good or bad. Oh, the bad word is there. It's a bad word. It has a bad word. But I think it's just kind of useless. I asked you some questions about verse 10 in the notes here. Who must appear? All. Thank you, Tom. Where must we appear? Before the judgment seat of Christ. Why must we appear? because he's got something for each one of us to receive, that everyone may receive. And who will receive? Everyone. We all show up and we all receive. What will we all receive? The things we've done in this body, the things done in his body. Will it be good? Will it be bad? Whether it be good or bad. Does the scripture teach about this elsewhere? I first take you to Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. Page 1208, page 1208 in the Schofield Bible. Romans 14, and it's at the very end of verse 10. Uh, leaving aside the context, he just says, uh, as he's kind of criticizing the Romans for fussing with each other, he said, we, must, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of not Richard or Paul, but the judgment seat of Christ. 
we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In verse 12 of that same chapter, it says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself. I'm not going to account for my children. I'm not going to account for my parents. I'm not going to account for my spouse, myself, to God. Now, there's a sense in which you do account for other people as well. I'm going to digress just for a second because it's worth noticing this. I go back to 1 John. It's not in the notes. In 1 John, at the end of chapter 2, just before that part we already read, the end of chapter 2, in verse 28, he says, Now little children, abide in him, abide in Jesus, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. He's talking to the other believers. He's talking to people he is perhaps responsible for. He's saying, you stay close to the Lord. You abide in him. You stay in his word. You stay filled with the spirit. You do what you're supposed to do according to the Bible. And when he appears, the rapture, I think, we at the judgment seat, perhaps, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And I always thought this just a warning to those people he was talking to until I considered the word we. Because we isn't you. He didn't say that you may have confidence. He, he said that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In some sense, those are in spiritual leadership aren't just responsible for themselves, but they're also going to have consequences based on the ones they're responsible for not doing what they're supposed to do. It's a thought. It's not the whole thought, but it's a thought. We don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. I would pay attention to that thought and just don't just... Don't just win people and leave them. We have, it's, it's important to share the gospel. Do it every chance you get, even if you can't do any more than that. But if you can do more than that, don't be lazy. <laughs> don't win them to the Lord and then abandon them. What do you think about people that have babies and leave them somewhere? Around the country, in a few states now, there are places where you can put a baby-safe box outside a firehouse. The fire crews, they have a little notice and uh, alerts them after somebody's left, and they can go, and there's a, a newborn there that the parents didn't want to abort, but they left it there for somebody else, and it's happened. It's happened, I think, in Georgia one place. But uh, strange. What do you think about the parents like that? Well, at least they didn't kill it. That's right. Don't abandon babies. That's not the best choice. All right, we go back to this. We looked at Romans 14, 10, and 12. I'm going to go on to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is page 12, 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I've got to watch my clock. Paul describes our life together after we're saved. He says about himself, according, verse 10, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder I have laid the foundation and another builds thereon he says but let every man take heed how he builds thereon 
Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He said, I've been putting that foundation out there in town after town after town, Asia Minor and Greece and Anatolia and all around Italy. Just everywhere I go, I lay this foundation of Jesus Christ. Take heed how you build on it. And he says, if any, verse 12, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, now, when you read the, the next verse and realize it's going to be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, you realize the six things mentioned in verse 12 are in really two categories. Gold and silver will not only abide but be purified by fire. Precious stones are formed under great heat and pressure. But in a fire, wood and hay and stubble tend to be left ashes. And so it says, every man's work will be made manifest of what sort it is. The day will declare it's going to be revealed by fire. The fire is going to try the work of what sort it is. It's an illustration, but it's a realistic illustration. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereon, the gold, the silver, he'll receive a reward if you have that kind, that quality of work. If any man's work shall be burned, I have this nice house. I've got a great car and a motorcycle. Uh-huh. It's going to burn. But I wrote a book. It's going to burn. If any man's work will be burned, he'll suffer loss. He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I hope you pray for the people in Lahaina and Maui that have suffered loss. But if they're still alive, they still have a life to build on. Verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God? You. God doesn't live in a building. This is this that I point at around us, this physical structure, is not the temple of God. This one is, and that one is, and that one is. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The church, the believers, are the temple of God. Verse 17 is a stern warning. If any man defile... The temple of God, and that's not talking about spilling a cup of coffee here in the pew. It's talking about what you do to your body. If you defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Not only is there a judgment seat at the end, but even during your lifetime, you're the temple of God. There's a We read a little more of that passage than was in the notes. We're going to go on to the next chapter, chapter 4. Of 1 Corinthians, page 12, 15, in verse 5. Therefore, Paul says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who, will, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. I thought nobody knew about that. And will make manifest not only what you did, but the counsels of the hearts. Your desires, your plans, your working in your mind for the Lord, your fear of the Lord, the counsels of the hearts, and also the hidden things of darkness. There's a passage in the Old Testament that says this man that was intent on doing something wicked looked this way and he looked that way, and then he went on and did it. He forgot to look that way. He forgot to look up. Everything that we do is, as it says, I think in Hebrews, is naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's no hiding place from God. 
where we think it's hidden, it's going to show up. And some people say, we're going to see everybody else's? I don't know. It does say, bring to light. Bring to light the hidden things of darkness. We'll make manifest the counsels of the heart. The result of it at the end of the verse is encouraging at least. Then shall every man have praise of God. After the bad is burned away, what's left? God's going to praise, and there it is. He's going to praise the doer of the good. In Galatians chapter 6, we go on to page 1247. Galatians chapter 6. It looks like a warning or a threat, but it's not. It's a promise. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. That's kind of a warning. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There's a law people call the law of sowing and reaping. And sometimes they just say you reap what you sow. And that's kind of a simplification of one aspect of it. You reap what you sow. If you go out and plant a garden and you plant beans, my mom tricked me into this when I was a child. She said, you can have your own garden. Here's some bean seeds. And I planted them and the plants came up and sure enough, they were beans. I didn't like beans (laughs) at the time. But what you sow, you reap. If you want carrots, don't plant beans. I like carrots. You reap what you sow. Some other aspects of the law of sowing and reaping. You reap where you sow. You plant seeds here. You can't go over in the garden over there and pull the carrots. You reap where you sow. You reap later than you sow. You plant today, you don't reap today, and you don't even reap tomorrow. It takes some time for the plant to grow up. You reap what you sow, you reap where you sow, you reap the same kind that you sow, you reap later than you sow. There's a whole, let me see if I have the rest of that list that's not in my head, but it's in my Bible, maybe. (laughs) A lot of things in this old Bible that I don't remember some of them oh you reap more than you sow and that's in the in jesus's words as well but jesus said a seed dies when it's planted in the ground but it brings forth multitude more of the same as it was itself one plant but many many more seeds so you reap more than you sow sowing and reaping it's a wonderful principle In chapter 6 of Ephesians, which is page 1255, he says, after saying, don't be serving your masters with eye service. Serve as though they were Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. He wrote it to slaves, but we're all employed by somebody. We need to do it as to the Lord Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether you're a slave or free. Slavery wasn't promoted by the Bible, but the Bible was a real-world book, and there were slaves. And Paul said, You believing slaves, behave yourselves. Do good to your master, just like you were doing it for the Lord. And then he tells the masters, You take care of those that belong to you. 
for bearing threatening. You have a master in heaven, and there's no respect to persons with him. So the existence of slavery in the so-called civilization where this book was written was acknowledged. It wasn't commended, but the slaves were ordered by the Lord, by Paul, to do service to their masters as though they were serving God. And the, the reason for it was whatever you do that's good, you're going to receive of the Lord, whether you're bond or free. After Ephesians comes Colossians, page 1265. And Colossians has so many things in parallel with Ephesians. He says much the same thing about servants, slaves, obey in all things your masters. Verse 23, he says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance. You serve, you slaves, you serve the Lord Christ. You're not serving that old master. Verse 25, he says, He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done. And there's no respect of persons. My last bookmark here is in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And it's not the whole verse 23, but at the end of verse 23, Jesus quotes him. Uh, Jesus is quoted by John as he wrote down this letter. He says, I will give unto every one of you according to your works. In chapter 22 of Revelation, at the very end, <laughs> the page number is the end, Episcopal Bible. Uh, chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus speaks again. He says, Behold, I come quickly. And the first thing he says after saying, I come quickly, is my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I like the page number, the end. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to go back. We've got five more minutes. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And go a little further, 2 Corinthians 5, that was page 1233. But that's all I could find together about the judgment seat of Christ in the, in the New Testament. So I thought you'd like to see those. After he says we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in the very next verse, I would leave out the title there for right now in your mind. He just said, you're all going to get what you deserve from the Lord, whether it's good or bad. And then verse 11 starts with these slightly fearsome words, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness. The first part of that verse sometimes people will take it and say, let's, let's ignore the context. Let's just say hell and the eternal lake of fire, hell is so bad, we got to warn people because it's terrible if somebody goes to hell. Well, that's a sure truth, but it's not what that's about. The terror of the Lord most likely in this verse is about there's a judgment seat of Christ coming and you're going to be there and you're going to get what you deserve, good or bad. It's, however, very much too strong of a word in English. It does mean fear. Terror is appropriate, but terror in our generation brings to mind the towers falling. It brings to mind the Boston Marathon bombers. It brings to mind 
acts of mass destruction. We think of terrorists and terrorism and the war on terror, but this is more like the Old Testament, I think, fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a phrase that's used many, many times in the Old Testament. It's a word that means fear, but it's, it's used in many passages where it's just a comforting thing. In the notes I have reverence. The fear of the Lord is well understood in the Old Testament, acknowledging that the Lord God is awesome, fearsome, like children with their father. A little child comes in and there's this, I, I don't know any, I guess Hulk Hogan was a Christian. His testimonies out there these days about coming to the Tampa Youth Ranch and Hank Lindstrom leading him to the Lord. He says, I trusted Christ as my Savior. But he's a big dude, and he's somewhat fearsome, although it was all an act, I suppose. I don't know if he had children, but can you imagine a little three- or four-year-old child of Hulk Hogan running into the room, and everybody else says, oh, it's Hulk Hogan, and it looks like he runs up, hugs his kneecap, you know, because he's this child. We want to be respectful. We don't want Hulk Hogan mad at us. God's a whole lot bigger than Hulk Hogan. The concept is like that of a child with their father. Also, I think the idea is that we who know the Lord know also the dread fate of the lost, who in order to believe and be saved must hear the gospel and be persuaded of the gospel. So we persuade men, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. All of this is serious. Paul's saying don't be distracted by little things. There's a reason to share the gospel with people. Jesus made it possible for everybody who would just believe in him to go to heaven. There are a good list of references in the notes about the fear of the Lord, and I'm going to skip them just for a second to go on to verse, verse uh, toward the end of chapter 5 here. Here's, here's the capstone of it. Here's the summary Paul gives in this chapter of what the gospel is. It's at the end of the notes as well. Here's what it is. He says, he, this ministry of reconciliation is what he calls it in verse eight, nine, 18. In verse 19, he says, let me explain that. To wit, let me explain that. God was in Christ. That's the incarnation. Reconciling the world unto himself. That's this, isn't it? God was in Christ. There is something between man and God God took it away, reconciling the world unto himself. These trespasses that belong to me, he says he's not counting them to me anymore. But the end of verse 19 says he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Is it enough just to read the verse? For some people it is. Some people need it explained, make them understand the meaning. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's all anybody needs to know. You believe in Jesus, as he said in John 3, 16, and you won't perish. You'll have everlasting life. And verse 20 says, we, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're the ones that represent him. He's not here anymore. We stand in his place as though God did beseech you by us, we beseech you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. How can I? God did all the work. He took what was between us out of the way when you believe in Jesus. 
you're reconciled to God. He made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning and the reassurance it is of our no-so salvation and the, the promise and the comfort and the warning of the truth about the judgment seat of Christ. We pray each one of us will here in this place and as we leave and go out, be sober-minded about the terror of the Lord, the judgment seat, the eternal hell, how great it is to have God as our Father and we can come to him as children and help us to see those lost who, when they see Hulk Hogan, all they see is fear. And when they see God without knowing him as Father, without having accepted the reconciliation that he made possible, without that, it is an eternal terror to be separated from him in the lake of fire. Father, thank you for the Bible and this study. We pray you'll bless each one that's listening and help and prepare our hearts for the, the worship service to follow. In Jesus' name.